growth requires more than capital. Why do we call it the cheat code? Nobody said growth had to be fair. Revenue solves everything. Welcome to the cheat code. What was our fastest path to revenue? We tend to like to do things the hard way. What's the cheat code? It's giving yourself an unfair advantage over the others. What is it that really works and how are we going to grow these organizations? That's our cheat code. Hey guys, welcome back to The Cheat Code. I'm joined by a special guest host today, Mr. Sean Kester. Mr. Wagner's out uh, south of the border on vacation. So, Sean, welcome to the show. And of course, joined once again by one of our excellent guests, this time Liz Christo. Liz is a partner over at Stage 2 Capital, which I'm intimately familiar with. But prior to that, she was over at OpenView Partners that uh, I would term as dominating the content marketing game within uh, the startup ecosystem, certainly early stage startups, and then also has an operator background. She's d- done a number of sales management roles, so perfect uh, guest for this this format. So, Liz, welcome to the show. Thanks. Great intro. Love it. So, I guess, uh, even before we get into the topic for the show, I'm curious, because of your role with, with Stage 2, and then certainly, you know, on the investment team uh, previously at OpenView, as you're trying to advise a lot of these early stage organizations, because you guys focus primarily on seed and, and series A stage organization, whatever that means these days. Um, but, you know, a lot of operational excellence to try to bestow upon these orgs, like you, you, with your background, like personally, where do you start to dig in, you know, within the operating team there? And, and as you look to get these guys up to the next stage of maturity? Yeah, I mean, I think there's a couple of things to like put in context here. And I, I loved your comment on seed and A and what that actually means right now. For us, it actually has remained fairly consistent. We tend to invest in companies where we're seeing early signs of product market fit and want to help like de-risk finding go-to-market fit. And so with like that level set in context, we spend most of our time on go-to-market. It's like the real focus of our firm. So we start with understanding like, where they've had success in their current customer base, trying to narrow in on an ICP. And then we have a kind of set of frameworks and playbook that follows from there, uh, which we can certainly talk more about. But I would say just at the highest levels, you know, the ICP is going to inform the buyer's journey, which is going to inform the sales process, which is going to inform how you think about the methodology from there on. Um, And then two of the frameworks we spend just a ton of our time on with each company is thinking about How do those things translate to leading indicators? Because most of what we look at in a business, we are looking backwards where it's like too late to have influence. And so instead, we try to focus on leading indicators of retention to think about how your customers are performing and leading indicators of unit economics to think about, are you actually setting yourself up for a healthy growth trajectory? And those things kind of in parallel are really where we tend to start with almost every company we invest in. Yeah, the, the, so uh, you know, very similar focus that that we have over here in revenue. I'm I'm curious because when we say go to market, so many people think, you know, what would be intuitive, you know, sales, right? Like revenue growth, bookings, and so on. You're actually a big proponent of customer satisfaction, which I think is completely undervalued within the SaaS world. Every metric is about acquisition, you know, and meanwhile, most of our revenue is is kind of creeping out the back door. Um, I've had partners on the services side where we were enabling their platform, where we were trying to, you know, extol this, this problem. And, and it almost seems like people ignore what is the cheapest revenue that you can ever gain, right? Which is existing revenue. So tell me a little bit about your thoughts there and, and just kind of your, your overall take on customer satisfaction and what that translates to. 
Yeah, it's it's kind of funny if you think about it. Like every startup is maniacally focused on the customer to start. Like these first few customer interactions, like you know you need to make them successful. And then I feel like even with the best of intentions, people sort of like lose sight of that and then start to focus more on ARR and growth and some of these vanity metrics, which, you know, you called out exactly right. I look at these customers as like they are the base and they're critical to growth. When you think about kind of what comes after these early customers, it's word of mouth. Are they referring you other customers? Will they be references as you're working on new deals? And ironically, like they're often the references for your investors too. And whether that's you know, backdoor references where we're reaching out or you're putting them on the phone, man, your customers have to be just your biggest proponent. And so I, you know, I start with that like knowledge of just, you know, regardless of upsell or your ability to grow revenue there, just are they happy and healthy and like willing to do those really critical actions in these early days? Um, yeah. But then from there, I think there's, you know, uh, a whole host of things we can look at when we think about customer health. Like the lagging indicator is obviously, did they renew and are they growing? But what are the things you want to look at along the way to know that your customer is actually, you know, getting alive in the way you expect, activating, adopting new features you release? There's a lot of engagement on like the product side when we're thinking about software companies that can be really helpful in defining what's going to come in the future when it comes to a renewal conversation. Um, So we tend to spend our time there. And I can certainly talk a little bit more about the methodology. But when I think about customer satisfaction, I think the data and actions speak much louder than like our qualitative assessment of how we're doing from a relationship standpoint. What would you say the most important metric is to measure that customer satisfaction? Like obviously there's CSAT, but like going a layer further. So we've defined something that we call the leading indicator of retention. And the concept is basically like get in a room with your team, create a hypothesis of what you think the product activity is that most closely correlates to value and then start measuring it. And so like, there's a lot of examples of what that could be, but I think, you know, critically, we want it to be something that's objective, that's like easy to measure, that you can actually instrument, that doesn't create just like oodles of work for someone to go try to assess, and then make sure that it actually aligns to where the customer derives value. So I can like share some examples of that. Like if you think about Slack, an example of that might be the number of messages that somebody is sending in their first 30 days. Like, are they bringing other users in? Are they like interacting with others? Um, If you're thinking about Dropbox, it is uh, related to how many files get uploaded or folders created. Um, If you're thinking about Calendly, it's the number of meetings that get scheduled in this first period of time. Um, and so we we share those examples with our portfolio companies and try to come up with what what is one, like one leading indicator of retention, one metric that we can look at that when we zoom out is indicative of whether or not that customer is actually going to be healthy. So I think of it as ideally uh, in a cohort basis. So, you know, most companies we work with um, tend to be, and I, should, I shouldn't even say this because even as I say it, I'm like, there are always exceptions, but uh, we tend to look at it on a cohort basis monthly. Obviously, there are examples of customers who are selling more mid-market and enterprise where if you're acquiring like one or two companies or customers a quarter, this makes no sense to do in a cohort basis. But bear with me for the norm and we can come back to the exceptions. Looking at like in a cohort of customers acquired in a month, how many of them actually hit whatever this metric is you define that's aligned to value. And then ultimately over time, does that metric align to the retention? So if you can look backwards and say, you know, we wanted 
70% of our customers to do this thing in the first 30 days? And then what is the renewal rate of the ones that did versus didn't? You actually can define this leading indicator that becomes the thing that your entire team and company can rally around. Get them to do the thing that we know influences retention. Um, and it really changes the dynamic from qualitative or check-ins with customers to actually driving a behavior that you know is something that they value. Um, and it'll actually get the entire team aligned around what, what actual actions you want to drive in the product. So this is kind of a loaded topic for me because I have a ton of opinion around why organizations don't put the focus on, on customer success. But I'm curious, especially in an enterprise environment where you have, so you mentioned a couple examples there that are are pretty straightforward, right? In terms of usage, you know, being a proxy for for value. As you get into solutions that are more complex, it's, I mean, it's really my opinion that people tend to shy to, or, or focus more on, on net new acquisition because it gets hard. It gets hard to foster adoption when you've got products that not only require you to be a great user of that system, but require you to be an expert within your discipline. And I'm thinking about like things like marketing automation and and you know tools that have just a ton of business workflow built into them. Is it possible to scale, you know, uh, customer success where you've got key skills that you're reliant upon in, in that way, or or is usage kind of the 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 next best proxy for success there ultimately? And and you have to build an ecosystem of services partners and consultants to kind of handle that that discipline aspect. Like, what are your, what are your thoughts around how to best accomplish that? Yeah, so I think in the mid-market or upper mid-market and enterprise, you're right, this starts to change a bit. Um, we're not looking at, you know, the cohort of 100 companies you acquired in a month. So I, I'm going to get to your question, but I think I start by like shifting this a little bit. And in the earliest days um, with like the first, you know, sub 10 customers, the thing I tend to look at is like, what is the defined value that you are selling? Like, what does the customer think they are going to get by deploying the solution? And like, let's make sure we have that on the table and we understand what we're aiming for. And then let's start to actually grade ourselves on like whether we're hitting the milestones along that journey. And so that starts with like, when we kick off an implementation, what are the various roles and are those defined? Who has to do what? What's our expected go live date? And did we hit that go live date? And so I think that to me is like the earliest signal of leading indicator of retention is just, are we getting people live and using this software or are we constantly delaying that? And if we are delaying it, why? So we get better at that over time. So that's like level one. It's like before you even get to usage, can you just get them like into the software? Then I am totally with you. I think it is like much harder to drive adoption in these, which is why I asked that question up front is like, what does the customer care about here? And what do they think they're going to derive as value? Because that needs to be the check-in point every time you are doing something with this, with this company or with your customer. And that end customer needs to be giving you feedback on that. So it might be time savings, revenue growth. It might be they are eliminating an FTE in their future plan. Whatever the thing is that you are driving at, the customer derives as value, you have to check in on how you're doing on that journey. Um, and then I think it's really important that internally you set some goals for each customer. And it may be in these upper mid-market and enterprise ones, different by company in the early days. It may not be that it can be cookie cutter, but I want to get 10 users trained or we're going to do it in tranches of, you know, 15 new people coming in each week and we're going to run a training session and we want to ensure that within two days of the training session, they take X action. 
but just creating these small milestones to break down to do it. Um, and look, I think the last piece you got to here of like, how do you drive that behavior, whether you do it internally, whether you have services providers, whether you have partners, consultants, et cetera. I do think that's like super company specific, but I'd be really interested to know like how you think about that. And instead, you know, you have a bit of a, like, you know, a, a strong opinion here um, and whether that, you know, if you, if you lean towards internal versus uh, bringing in a partner on that. I mean, I would say that like we're big proponents of partner ecosystems. So I think you have to do both. I think where a lot of organizations fall down just in terms of like the baseline is the amount of money they put towards customer success in general. And so you tend to get like this very, uh, it's almost like customer success is the skill set they're hiring for versus whatever your product does. And I think you have to have a good mix of, of those individuals. Yeah, like we want to, you know, uh, be a resource for our, our customers. We want to be checking in with them. We want to be facilitating kind of the lo logistics around that. But the best organizations that I've interfaced with also had a huge amount of just, uh, business knowledge within that like company. subject matter expertise exactly and and you know th th that wouldn't necessarily be your your primary uh rep or individual but they'd be able to bring some of that in and i i think that's a good bridge into okay yeah i'm able to consult on 40 percent of this but then we also have a partner that we need to bring in to go much deeper because it's just not scalable at a certain point but i do think you know just overall companies need to be taking a look at what that attrition what those metrics are and what that actually means to them and, and making a, a substantial investment in that side of the house in the same way that you would with sales or, or marketing or, or things that are predominant. Actually, marketing is a whole black hole. Like I actually think it should, should span both functions. But, um, you know, you, you just have to put your money where, you know, where you see value. And I think there's a massive amount of value that's not being captured in terms of customer success and, and just managing that existing base. Yeah, I think that makes a ton of sense. I, look, that like industry and domain expertise, I think you're right. Um, it's it's often very hard to find people who have, you know, the CS skill set and the industry and domain um, skill set. And I think the two things we've seen, eh, maybe three that we see mitigated partners is definitely one that you brought up. I think the hiring SMEs that can sit across functions and kind of slot into different spots is actually like a really interesting way to tackle that. And then the third is really like using that to drive your enablement strategy. And I think often in the early stages, companies think about customer enablement and like, how do we do trainings of customers? But there is like this whole other set of training that needs to happen, which is you are going to hire and scale people that have not been in this industry before. It is just the reality of like hiring right now. And so how are you going to get them up to speed quickly and not use your customers as the guinea pig to do that? And I think that's a really good. Yeah, I think who did that really well in the early days actually was Marketo because you had folks that were, you know, you take like a John Miller who I don't know what John's yeah. business, you know, his job title even was in the early days, but like he was a, an expert at using that tool, like a Maria Pergolino, same thing, right? And they just had these kind of individuals scattered across the organization who could be really, to your point, broad and, oh, you've got, you know, really more of a marketing challenge. I can comment on that because I'm, I'm doing that as well as using the tool. Again, it's hard to scale out once you hit like, you know, customer 250 and so on. Like it becomes a different challenge and different equation. But early stage. You also have more resources to do it too. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm reflecting like dating myself, but like way back in my early NetSuite days, um, we were, you know, training and hiring just hundreds of sellers and account management folks every year to sell 
super complex, like GL and ERP software to CFOs. And they're never going to be the expert on that call, right? But they can both enable the process and then bring in the right resources at the right time for those like very strategic high-level conversations. Um, and that did work really well for us. We were hiring CPAs and, you know, ex-CFOs and like fractional folks to help support both the internal enablement and also those like really high-level strategic conversations with customers. And I, yeah, I think that's a really good call out that I think it actually can scale regardless of company size. Sean, I'm curious to get your take on that just in terms of, you know, you, you saw so much change over at SalesLoft. Like, what, what did you guys do? Yeah, so... We tried to well, we scaled it internally at first, and so as the product as the product matured, um, so did all of the people that were were trying to help our customers. And I think that became difficult to do at scale, just the bay the speed that we were growing. And so we did start leveraging partners uh, to to kind of subsidize uh, that. So we had our own people trained in inside, but then also would be able to leverage partners on the outside. And then as the product grew to very, or when we started going into enterprise and things got really complex, um, then we started going more heavily on the um, the partnership side, just from an implementation and business onboarding. And they were also adding valued services on top as well. So it was a win-win for both of us. And then ultimately ended up acquiring one of our best partners and bringing them in-house and then using that to kind of spin that up. So it, it kind of went internal, external and then internal again, but with the power of people that were already... Sean, you guys also had like the interesting benefit of like drinking your own Kool-Aid on that. Like how much did you use the internal best practices like when you were talking to customers? Uh, well, you know, it was all, it was very industry specific. So in the early days, we told everyone what we did. Uh, we continued to tell everyone what we did, but it was more applicable um, as we expanded to, you know, mid-market and enterprise and then different roles. Um, you know, our best practices were always basically around sales, but then we would start sharing things like how we used it for recruiting and for finance and for customer success. And so that kind of helped not only grow the product, but also everyone's knowledge of how to use it um, and help expand our ICP too. Yeah. It's interesting because like I think many software companies don't have that like advantage of also using it in-house. And I think that can be like actually really interesting both for creating content, for telling the story, for building SMEs. Like that's a really interesting angle. Yeah, it really helped people on board to like understand the product because it's not like you're using some DevOps solution that your salesperson never touches before, right? It's like that's what they use day in and day out. So uh, that was definitely an advantage. Yeah. So Liz, I guess let's assume that we're doing this right, right? Like we're making the investment, we're we're understanding what those key uh, you know goals and outputs are for our customer, and and suddenly we've enabled a, a, a tranche of great customers. How do organizations use that to their benefit in ways that you don't always, you know, see as kind of the cookie cutter way, which is like, oh, will you be my my testimonial call, which I think is kind of the blanket. Will you be a, you know, G2 uh, review campaign? Exactly. Right. Like, yeah. like, how have you seen that asset really, you know, uh, be leveraged in, in a way that's meaningful? Yeah, I there's a couple that come to mind as you say that. I mean, look, I think they're the the things you're describing to start. Like many companies aren't even doing a great job of that, of like getting the G2 reviews, of getting the testimonials, of figuring out how to get in front of customers and get video that they can cut up in different ways. So like, I think there are creative ways to do that too. But a couple of things that I think I, I would keep really top of mind. One is just the one-to-one references. And you can use that in a lot of different ways. But you have to track it, you have to not overuse it, and you have to figure out the exact right time to ask for it. But references with investors, references with like top tier customers who are like game changing for you and actually can hear from them. And also 
cold outreach. Um, so we, I've seen that work really well in an enterprise sale where you are, you know, getting to the end, you know, that it's like you against another competitor and you have a great case study of a customer who switched off the competitor, have them reach out directly to the customer, have it be more organic than you setting it up. Like that can be a really interesting one. Um, the other thing I think about with customers is like how you use them in, in this like really like interesting in-person way. So whether that's like hosting a dinner or an in-person event or a breakfast, it doesn't matter, but bringing people together or like where a customer and your prospects can interact organically. Again, like, yes, we're forcing the situation, but like, it's not you like creating what the topics are. It's you putting those people in a room and allowing them to talk about their challenges. And naturally your product plays a role in that. Um, And then the other thing I think about is just like feedback for you as a company. When you have a really good relationship with a customer, you can get product feedback from them. You can have a real discussion on trade-offs in the roadmap. You can get pricing feedback, Um, even starting to think about like act two and three and like the vision of where you're going. You know, whether you call it a customer advisory board or design partner or whatever, I think those, those really active and engaged customers who are willing to give you real feedback, the good and the bad, are incredible incredibly useful if you can figure out how to tap into them. Um, I don't know. So those are some of the things I think about. I'm sure there's tons more. And I don't know, Sean, if you have other things you guys have tried over time. Yeah, I can't say enough about customer advisory boards. We, uh, and partner advisory boards for that matter. And so um, I was um, I was able to lead our efforts on creating our first customer advisory board, which um, is a challenge in itself, but it gave us the opportunity to really bring some strategic topics to the table. And we did it a couple of different ways. One is we had an advisory board that was 15 members. Uh, it was going to stay the same for at least a year or two, and they wouldn't, they couldn't sub anybody out if they couldn't make, they couldn't make it. And then we did some regional ones with certain subsets of our customer base, and those were things of digging into product, or the customer uh, journey itself, things around customer success and, and how they were onboarded, or things of that nature. Um, we did the same thing with the partnership side, and those gave us so much valuable feedback and um, tangible kind of outcomes to what we wanted to do. It also gave the opportunity to bring other execs into the room that may not have as much customer exposure or may have not heard the pain point in the way that you have seen it. So I always use it as leverage to get, you know, initiatives done that I felt passionately about. Um, and uh, and a handful of others execs did it as well. So, uh, you know, as, as by and large, I don't think you can do it early enough. So I would encourage everyone to start one of them. I will give my like word of caution on that too, though, because the one problem I do see really early with it is it often gets used as a selling tool where it's like, hey, for this big deal, you get to join our customer advisory board and you get input on our product roadmap. And if that expectation setting isn't handled well, it becomes this really odd dynamic where like the largest customers think they control the product roadmap or are pissed when you don't do the things they want. And so figuring out like the balance there, because I'm with you, like I am a huge, huge fan of customer advisory boards. I've also seen them kind of go wrong. Um, And so figuring out like, what are the expectations? How do you set really clear guidance early on of like how you're going to leverage the group, like where, where they, where you want input versus like your willingness and timeliness and acting on it. Um, I do think there's like some trade-offs there, but I'm with you. I think it's, it's great to get customer feedback in on as early as you can. Yeah, you just don't let sales have access to the guest list or the invite list. <laughs> yeah, so I, you made an interesting point there uh, in terms of exposure to to customers, which I think is such a such an underutilized focus area. 
what, what have you have you seen customers leverage or, or, or portcos leveraging that or or you know even within your your past experience as an operator because like i always think of like the doordash model where you're like you have to go out and be a doordash driver for like one day per month that i love that concept um are there any other like kind of tricks and and you know uh tactics that you can leverage yeah i've seen a couple creative things um I think one that I've seen work really well is a bit of a road show where like when we have new executives join, we go spend time on site with a couple of key customers and we make that, you know, whether you call it your QBR or kind of whatever the process is, the customer spends some time live with that new person and we kind of try to capture those learnings and bring them back to others. Obviously, that's not scalable as you're doing hundreds of hires, but I think for executives like that one to one connection is really important. Um, the other thing I've seen people do is invite customers to join either like your sales kickoff, your all hands meeting, your, you know, whatever, like kind of company event, bring a couple of customers on stage, have them dial in for a zoom. It doesn't really matter what the forum is, but start by having them tell like their before and after story. So everybody gets the framing, have a couple of questions prepared, but then let people engage. And I think there is just this aspect of like hearing from the customer that is like really powerful and to remember to keep doing it over time, like you don't want just your earliest customers to have that connection. Um, and then the last thing I've seen more and more is the shared support responsibility where like everybody in the company takes a support shift. And obviously that's easier to do when a company's small and people are like much closer to the product. But even if it's a couple hours a week, staying close to and seeing what the regular customer questions are and like the challenges, I think particularly for product and engineering is like a really good practice. Um, again, maybe Sean, we keep the like sales folks out of the support queue. I don't know. Um, but I, I do think that actually has been pretty compelling. I think it's good for them actually. No, I, I love that idea. We try to throw customers in front of the team as much as possible. Yeah, I think you get the bigger you get, the harder it is to do that. Um, and I think going back to the same point you made on the success or the uh, customer advisory board piece, a lot of times the sexiest logo or the biggest customer gets the you know the lion's share of uh, FaceTime there. And it's really important to get uh, a diversity of types of customers in there, um, especially as you grow into new markets and new verticals and new geos. Yeah. Totally agree with that. Um, and actually, that's something we didn't really go down, but like customer advisory boards starting to divide up. Like at one point, um, and that's why we had them by vertical. And it was like, we have a specific group that advises us on manufacturing versus wholesale distribution versus retail. And like those aren't the same use cases. We actually like wanted to have separate groups driving discussion around their specific roadmaps. Yeah, so I'm going to ask a question just because we've all, I think we've all said it on this call. I've said it like four times and I'm just curious, like even around the horn, like, is it important to, to scale these? Because like, I think every time we've said it, like, it's been like, well, you can do that really quality thing and then you can't any longer because you get larger. But like, is, is that just a, a you know, the, a challenge for each organization? Like you just need to keep that maniacal focus on quality and, and give up some of the scalability of that because it's going to yield such a such a huge benefit yeah i mean i think it depends which things we're talking about um i do think there's ways to scale each of the practices we've talked about like leading indicators of retention that we started with actually is like more important as you scale to me being able to zoom out and look at a cohort and understand are we getting better over time I think is like really like helpful to a leader where there's thousands of customers and probably more so than when there's 10. 
Um, so like from a scale standpoint, that makes sense to me. Customer advisory boards, that works too. But I think the critical part is like, what's the term? How many people? And it's like, are we prioritizing correctly? Because the customer advisory board we had when we were 20 customers isn't the one we should have when we're a thousand. And so I think it's probably more of about the willingness to like reflect on the current needs of the business and think about like what the next stage looks like. Um, but I think each of these things span like a horizon of time and, and scale. Um, the I guess the other thing I was thinking about as you think about like scale is like some of the things you track or look at should change over time. Um, and I think, you know, I, I started with this leading indicators of retention, but like you need the zoom out view and you also need to know where you can double click and how you can get deeper in each of these things and and kind of dig in. And so I think like, to me, there's a lot of value in having um, this time to reflect on like what the next stage of the company looks like and not wait for it to just happen and to be really strategic and thoughtful about what are the things we're tracking? What are the programs that need to change? And I don't know whether that's part of a quarterly or annual planning process, actually getting you know your executive team around the room aligned on what the critical things are for the coming period and making sure everybody's thinking about them in advance, not you know waiting till something breaks. Can you share some examples of where you've seen success in the past with not only um, a team that kind of gathers all this data on a regular basis, but like who tactically is in charge and how do they surface that? And is it to the entire organization? Is it just to certain departments or certain you know levels within the business or you know anywhere where we can get more tangible with like, what does good yeah. look like here? Um, let's focus on like leading indicators of retention just because we started there. And I think there's some double click within that. I think of this generally first as like, who is the audience of this information? And there are a couple different groups. There is like internally your other like employees and like who needs to see what. There is probably like the executive team that is another layer. There is like your board and like a broader investor base. And then I think there's also like the really detailed version, which is like, how does an individual CS person know what to do with this? And each of those is like a slightly different version of the same thing. So I'll start at the highest level and think about like what should go to your like investors and board. And then I think work backwards down. And I would love to see like this aligns with what you guys think of. I think first it starts with alignment. Like, what are the things we think are important? What are our goals? How do we do it against them? And that to me is something that should come out monthly in an email or whatever distribution you have to your investors and board. And then I think every board meeting should have a concept of this too. We should start by talking about how are we doing against this leading indicator of retention that we have actually defined? And what does that mean for our customer health? And how does that help us project our renewal rate, our NRR? Then I think you can use that to look for anomalies and say, okay, we have a cohort that's not performing or we have some outlier customers. And then we start to double click into those and think about what are the other inputs to customer health and then what are we doing to mitigate them? I think that's actually like fairly similar between what you share with your board and your executive team. Likely your execs are reviewing that before it goes to the board. Then when you think about like what you're sharing with the rest of the team, I don't think that level of detail is probably necessary. It's probably like something slightly higher or more specific examples that they care about. But then within the team and how you think about actually enabling CS, I think a lot of companies get like mired in data and they end up sharing like way too much and building these crazy dashboards and you have like a 20 dimension customer health score and like you could put that in front of a CSM, but like what the heck are they going to do with it? And so I think about trying to boil it down to like, when you look at the highest level leading indicator of retention, what are the few customers that need attention? 
And then how do you start to build a playbook around it? So when you see X, you do Y. And I I really hesitate when people do this like, hey, like every customer gets a monthly email or a quarterly QBR. And like it becomes this cadence of meetings that like feel rote and like a you assume a customer wants to talk to you like they don't like they they want you to respond to what they're doing not just this like cadence of meetings. And so I I try to lean into this playbook concept of what are the few things and actions that are either going to drive higher customer success or mitigate when you see like risk or concern happening? And then what are the specific plays that you are going to have your team enact? And then how do you measure and make sure those actually happened? And Sean, to loop back, I think like the who in this is just so dependent on the organization. It might be the leader of the team. It might be a BI person. It might be RevOps. It might be finance. Ironically, more and more, I feel like finance is owning a lot of the reporting in an org. But I, I do think you're right that like someone needs to own it and make sure that it's consistent and that you don't lose it. And that is something I see often where companies set it up and then you fast forward four months and there's some turnover and suddenly it's just like gone. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've seen product own it. I've seen obviously success on it. I've seen the CEO or the COO own it as well. Um, you know, what's, what's hard about that is everyone has, there's different, different plays based on who is deciding to own it. Right. So product's going to try and fix it in a different way than success is. And so you know, I think the entire organization ultimately owns it. Right. But to your point, what does each department do or each team do in response um, to some of those leading indicators? And, you know, ideally you have some sort of health score that you can see on a weekly or so that you're not in the red all of a sudden without understanding what's happening. I'm actually so glad you brought up that like CS versus product, like as an example, because I do think the other challenge is like a lot of the concerns that get brought up or when you see something going wrong, our answer is to throw like a body at it and not to zoom out and think about like, hey, are other customers going to experience this? Is this a product like deficit or something we need to fix in a more scalable way to come back to that too, Justin? Well, I think, you know, that notion of a playbook really resonates with me because when you think about, you know, playbooks and then certainly with kind of all this ABM fodder on, on the last, you know, seven, eight years, we think about threading a lot as it pertains to, you know, acquisition and, and, and go to market, but we don't think about it in terms of customer success playbooks. And I think we, we should, right? Like, how do we bring in product? How do, how do we bring in success? How do we bring in marketing or finance to your point based on the pain the customer is having? So. I think that's a really powerful concept to apply to those those playbooks because to your point, the thing I see most often is we've got this huge rubric of red, yellow, green. We we know what's happening, but we don't know exactly what we want to prescribe as the remedy to that. So super powerful. Yeah. Um, that red, yellow, green, it's it's I also find that a lot of companies start leaning on like more of the CS qualitative feedback of like grade your own account rather than the data. And I know I opened with this, but just I will always index on like what can we actually see happening? Like actions speak louder than words. And someone can tell you day in and day out that they love the product, but if they aren't logging in and they aren't using it, like that is a way bigger indicator that something's going on. Um, so I don't know, I think figuring out how to validate any qualitative uh, scoring is a really important thing for companies to do. Yeah, it goes back to your point you made earlier. It's like you have to figure out what your leading indicators are. Right? Is it logins? Is it emails sent? Is it times that they create some sort of you know workflow or something of those things? But there's obviously there's going to be different amounts of them too, right? So you, know, you look at things like they've got 50 licenses and they only have 30 active. That's it's a red flag, right? And, and things going a little bit deeper. It's like layers down in the actions themselves, like the lack of actions 
admins versus users as the behavior is supposed to be different. Yeah. Yep. Yep. The one other thing that I I feel like people don't monitor closely enough um, in the early days is the reports of bugs or the number of support tickets. And I think often that's because it's all in email and doesn't have a ticketing system. And one of the things I like to keep an eye out for is if there's like any outliers in the number of those things. So like, you know, if every customer has a support ticket once a month, fine. If you got 30 support tickets and they're all from one customer, that's a really different thing that's happening. And so are there insights you can pull from the way your team is interacting and how can you actually aggregate that data in a way that it's useful in the early days? Um, Because if you're just stuck in like responding to those tickets, it's very hard to zoom out and see the patterns. Yeah, it also helps to find your ICP a little bit tighter in the early days because you realize like this type of customer is not good. Not not for us. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, we, we kind of talked about that in the beginning, but I actually think that's a really important thing to reflect on, too, is like over time, like you are going to close ICP and non-ICP customers. And you do want to see what the difference in the behavior is, both in renewal rate, in their ability to actually attain some of these leading indicators and like what the other impact on the business is. Um, but like really often, I think we see customers or we see our portfolio companies close a customer, be really excited about it churn it a year later and then be like that wasn't icp so like it really doesn't matter and we're like well you thought it was when you closed it so like what changed um and so i think getting really like crisp on that definition and clear if it changes over time too so you know i have to ask it because everyone loves to you know focus on tech stack but our so many of the tools and i think you know like organizations these days are certainly trying to trim on the sales and marketing side but on the cs side i see so you know so few so many there are so fewer number of tools aimed at retention, which I think kind of speaks into the, the overall problem that we're trying to solve. But is there a baseline of, of tools that you recommend or that you see, you know, best in class organizations implementing to, to successfully run all these motions? Man, I don't think I have like, this is the tech stack I recommend, but I will say, I think there's a few things that I tend to look for. Um, the first is like in either a business that's like high volume implementation or long and like complex ones. How are you monitoring it? And are there shared plans with the customer? And I think there's some really interesting tools that are coming up there that allow for a like much cleaner experience that shows this is the process we're going to follow. I mean, even like early companies might be doing this in Google Sheets. That's fine too, right? But like, how are you communicating with your customer and what is like the system of accountability between the two? Um, That to me is like a really important one. Um, some ticketing system so that you understand what's happening with your customers, I think is pretty critical. And then um, figuring out like where the shared knowledge lives. So whether that's in your CRM, ideally it's in your CRM, or if there is like another place where customer interactions are like accounted for, I, I do feel like you need that sort of like 360 degree view of the customer and often things live in people's emails. And I think it gets really scary when you experience employee turnover and that's the case. So where do things live? Um, then I guess the last one that I think of often is just whatever the call recording tool is. I think that when we think about coaching and bringing people up to speed, it's just such an obvious place to spend time and a place to get better. And actually we talked about this to give people exposure to what customers are saying. Like if you can expose those calls to others, that can be really awesome too. What am I missing? The coaching element is so critical there. Like call recording isn't just, hey, go listen to this call. It's, you know, adding that that critical element to it. So couldn't agree more. Are there other things you're seeing that are like really top of mind for POSA? 
I think the what you you kind of addressed it there in terms of like a shared plan. But I actually looked at a startup the other day that was, you know, starting as like almost a an RFP marketplace or being able to transition the the normal buying process into more of a formal structure, subbing that out to you know a selected group of of vendors, and then using that criteria that's run through the evaluation period to flip flop into the project plan. And I thought that was just a really smart way to approach that because. You know, like we talked about leading indicators quite a bit, but like the lagging indicator that the customer tells you in the sales process of like, hey, I need to accomplish this by X date, right? Like I just find that organizations completely forget about that. And then the, what's the first call? The goal? Right. The, the first call in CS is tell me about your goals. It's like, well, I just spent three months telling someone in your org about my goals. So the more that you can create- that knowledge transfer, yeah. Mm -hmm, the more that you can create that streamlined process. And to your point, it has to be collaborative. It's just not that internal project plan. Um, I think that's that's you know the, the baseline of success for me. Yeah, it's funny. I have a couple of companies that I'm working with right now and that have like a pretty significant lift on getting data from the customer in order to start the implementation. And it's it's like shocking to me how slow that process can go on the customer side. And so we're constantly brainstorming ways to like, how do we make that happen? And this shared plan to me, I think, is a great way to do it. To just make it crystal clear to the customer, like, we can't do anything until we get that from you. Like, this is step one. If I'm the customer, I'm like, get that to them the day we close the deal. Like, why am I delaying this? Um, I just think, like, there, some of that shared expectation setting is more obvious when there is, like, a clear, like, one plan and system and platform that we're looking at to do it. Yeah, I mean, they do those joint joint uh, plans in sales, right? And to get to the deal. And it's like, well, you should carry that all the way through. Totally. Um, yeah, we, I mean, we had similar issues. I've run into similar issues before where we've had to include it in the contract. Like it has to be, it was like contractually obligated. They had to give us certain things by a certain date um, or else it basically overwrites our ability to, to do anything, right? We, can, we can't make them successful without it. So you're, it's very surprising how long a lot of that takes sometimes. Well, this has been awesome, Liz. Uh, if people want to get in contact with you, where can they go? I'm sure, if, you know, you're, you're ubiquitous, but what's your favorite channel? Uh, favorite channel is just email because it's the only inbox I can manage. Uh, Liz at stage2.capital. I know, crazy. Awesome. Well, again, thanks for joining us here today. Super insightful. Love talking about customer success. It's such an obvious cheat that most organizations uh, overlook. Uh, I'm Justin Gray. Mr. Sean Kester, thanks for making this your inaugural uh, uh, host on the, on the podcast and appreciate both of your time. We'll talk soon.